The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Monday, everybody. You're watching Scorebox on CNBC and these are your Monday morning headlines. Three days of talks failing to deliver results in Brussels. EU leaders remain at odds over the bloc's recovery fund, despite another all-night round of negotiations, as the frugal four insist on lowering grants handed to the worst-hit countries. They would like to reach something which is not good quality enough in our understanding. So if there is a break, it's because of them, not because of them. So I don't like blame game, but the Dutch man is the real responsible man for whole mass we have. Uh, the gridlock in Europe keeping gains in broader Asia in check, but Chinese stocks outperforming with the Shanghai Composite more than 2% higher. The WHO reporting a record single-day increase in global coronavirus cases as Florida logs its fifth day of over 10,000 infections. But the US President, Mr. Trump, once again insisting COVID will disappear. And lack of insight, Ray-Ban maker Essilor Luxottica suing its 7 billion euro takeover target Grand Vision, citing the Dutch company's failure to provide access to information on how it handled its COVID crisis. It's a lighter data week in the US. We've got some interesting housing data. We've got some interesting initial jobless claims as ever as well. But there is still a vast amount of corporates on both sides of the Atlantic and some stunning data out of Japan. I'll come to that in around about 15 minutes time. Just safe to say, I'm going to talk a little bit about Japan when I do the walls a little bit later on. Right, let's talk about a couple of these very important European stocks, which I've already reported literally as I was doing my headlines as well. Uh, and I'm taking a look at the performance of Philips. Philips, a group which is much pared down from its former conglomerate style the shares actually year to date shares in Philips are up 1.8% year to date perhaps of course because of its focus on medical devices and digitization as well but you want to know what the group's saying as well so very interesting second quarter sales 4.4 billion euros comparable sales down 6% comparable sales down 6% income from continuing operations of 213 million euros adjusted EBITDA EBITDA no D in there margin of 9.5% as well um, let me just give you some more details on this as well which uh, they expect to return to growth and improve profitability for the second half of the year Everything we're hearing now on a corporate and an economic basis has surely got to be geared about looking forward rather than the malaise we had in the second quarter. So statements like that, very important. We expect to return to growth and improved profitability for the second half of the year. Second quarter income from continuing operations uh, was 213 million compared with 260 million in the second quarter 2019. Comparable order intake increased 27% 27% in the second quarter. Again, we talk about medical devices. Second quarter comparable order intake, which I think is very interesting, increased 27%. For the full year, okay, let's get this. We continue to aim for a modest comparable sales growth and adjusted EBITDA margin improvement as well. So by and large, positive statements going forward. I think their order intake was very interesting as well. Right, would you like to look at Julius Baer next? I think you would. Well, Julius Baer is one of the most highly 
rated stocks in Europe. You know, we talk a lot, you and I out here as well, about the price to book ratio of European banks compared with US banks. And the point I make to you a lot is that they trade at a discount, not this one. So Julius Baer already comes in at a price to book going forward of 1.3. So again, way above the mean that we see across Europe. The shares here today down 15.4%. So that's the foundation for you. What about the numbers? Listen to this. You're not going to hear this a lot from European companies. Julius Baer Group, Argay, record high net profit in challenging market and operating environment underlines the resilience of the business model. I'm not going to hear that from many European companies, so I'm going to say it again. Record high net profit. Let's go on. The IFRS net profit attributable to shareholders Julius Baer up 43% to 491 uh, million Swissy. Uh, IFRS earnings per share up 45% to uh, two spot 28 Swissy per share. These are big numbers, aren't they? Gross margin, 92 basis points. Uh, first half 2019, 83. Again, pretty impressive. Uh, cost income ratio has gone down. Again, high volume of activity, high volume of profitable activity will take down your cost income ratio. Do you know how this one works? I think you do. I.e., if there's lack of activity and you've got highly paid bankers and investment bankers sitting around doing nothing, your cost income ratio goes up. And I remember having a wonderful row with this uh, about this with Tijan TM over at uh, formerly of Credit Suisse, of course. Uh, but the cost income ratio to 66.6% down from 71% a year ago, i.e. higher activity for those highly paid bankers across the board lowers your cost income ratio. Got that one? Assets under management. No, I'm not moving on director just yet. <laughs> Assets under management is my best friend, Rod, in the gallery today. No, Adam's my best friend as well. Um, both very important gallery directors. Assets under management down 6% from the end of 2019, uh, impacted by negative market performance and further strengthening of the Swiss franc. Should I give you one more? Yeah, go on. Rod's desperate for it now. Uh, we are confident, confident that we are well prepared for a challenging second half of the year. Um, so look, I, I, do you know what? I, I can't call two swallows of reporting a summer, but we've had an okay start, haven't we, you and I, haven't we? Oh no, I just remembered, I'm going to tell you about the Japanese day for a minute. That's not so good. Okay, here's the bad news. European leaders remain deadlocked after a drawn-out three-day summit over the bloc's budget and recovery fund. They will resume talks at 1600 CET today as divides remain over how to allocate the money and what strings to attach for the countries seeking aid. Now, the euro, we talked about this, high 113 last week. What's it now? Isn't that interesting? There is something going on. I think it's bigger than just these talks, I'll be honest with you. I think there's a dollar story, but we can talk to our experts later on about this. But the euro is rallying hard compared to where you and I were on Friday. It ain't rallying on the back of this, uh, these talks, though, Sylvia, is it? So tell us what's going on here. <laughs> right. So today we will see the European leaders meeting once again in Brussels. They have been there since Friday they had in a huge amount of bilateral negotiations over the weekend. In fact, they uh, were meeting in smaller groups rather than at 27 for most of the time in order to try and bridge their differences. But the fact that they have been meeting now entering the fourth day of negotiations really suggests, Steve, that they actually want to get a, a deal done at this summit. And that could be positive for the markets today. In fact, we heard from the Austrian Chancellor um, Sebastian Kurz tweeting just moments ago that he the, the negotiations have been difficult, 
But nonetheless, he said that we can be very happy with today's results. So it seems that they have been moving closer, that they are bridging their differences. And two sources told me a moment ago that there will be a new official proposal made this afternoon. And if that is indeed uh, accepted by the, the leaders, we could then see a breakthrough this afternoon. The biggest hurdle, Steve, that we've seen over the weekend was the level of grants. So if we rewind back to May when the Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany and the, the French President Emmanuel Macron suggested a recovery fund made of 500 billion euros of grants, then the European Commission added uh, 250 billion euros in loans, and that's how we ended up to the current 750 billion euro rescue package. But the frugals, the uh, countries uh, in they are the Netherlands, uh, Austria, Sweden, and Denmark. They have been against such a high level of grants. They've been demanding a cut. And in fact, the only official proposal that we saw over the weekend in Brussels already had a cut to 450 billion euros in grants from the original 500. And in fact, these four countries included also uh, Finland, it was also involved um, with the men from the Frugals, wanted to bring that level even further down to, to 350. So that was the biggest hurdle over the weekend. And in this context, we actually heard from Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, telling reporters um, outside the European Council that if there's one person to blame for this ongoing deadlock, is indeed the Dutch Prime Minister. Let's take a look. I initiated nothing in that respect. So we have to clarify that if the deal is blocked, it's not because of me, but because of the Dutch guy, because he initiated something. So I'm standing on the status quo as it is today, in regulation of rule of law, financial control of the budget and all that kind of thing. So I, I think it's okay. They would like to reach something which is not good quality enough in our understanding. So if there is a break, it's because of them, not because of them. So I don't like blame game. But the Dutch man is the real responsible man for whole mass. There were other differences over the weekend, not just the issue of grants. There was also um, some differences over the rule of law and uh, the governance of the recovery fund. And the tensions were running high, Steve. At one point, President Macron actually told the Frugals that they were putting the European project at risk. Sorry, who's putting the European project at risk? People who have historically for the last 20 years misspent the allocated funds that has been given to them in the South or in a lot of these countries and have racked up debt to GDPs of between 100 and 180%. Or the people who actually just want a little bit more governance or more money being handed out to the South. I'm confused here, Sylvia. Well... There is a, sub a subjective element there. And in fact, we know that the Netherlands have been um, very vocal about this governance issue of the recovery fund, because for the longest time, they, they believe that the European Commission has not been implementing the Stability and Growth Pact in the best way. So essentially, the Netherlands are of the opinion that when it comes to uh, implementing fiscal targets in the various countries, the European Commission has been uh, quite uh, benevolent and not enforced sanctions when it had to, when it had reasons to actually uh, implement them and force the countries to actually comply with their own fiscal targets. But when it comes to this recovery fund, in fact, the uh, official proposal that we saw over the weekend had already an element of, uh, um, of the governance of governance of this recovery fund, and that is that every member state needs to essentially put together a plan 
that will say how they will be spending the money they will get from this recovery fund. And that plan will have to be approved by the other government. Now, we don't know as of yet if that will actually be a, a vote that needs a unanimous decision at the council level. Let's see what the proposal that will be put on the table today will say about that. What we saw over the weekend is that this would still have to be approved by the other governments, but based on qualified majority. But indeed, there is indeed this element that the money needs to be overseen and um, that the member states need to say very clearly how they will be investing this money. And that component, Steve, is already on the proposal that's on the table. All right. Next time you lend me 50 euros, I'll tell you exactly how I'm going to spend it, Sylvia. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, Let us move on. Janet Murray is listening to all of this, investment director at Bruin Dolphin. Janet, you're not booked to talk about the euro uh, and about these talks as well. But what do you think? I mean, I don't know. I've just got my own views. What do you think about the way that Europe is running its financial affairs? Yeah, so I think... um is the nature of the European Union. So every country is kind of idiosyncratic in itself. So uh, there's got to bound to be differences in how they manage their finance. But I think, you know, the coronavirus pandemic is, you know, once in a lifetime kind of events. And I think it is really important for the European Union or the countries to stand together in order to rebuild the very fragile economy. So, you know, I think that the talks are bound to be difficult because it has to be agreed. Uh, and this is not a, a small sum, like 750 billion with 500 billion in grants. So it is bound to be difficult to be agreed by all the member states, especially um, the frugal ones, as you have mentioned. Um, but it, there are signs that uh, at least there's still talks going on. And I think it is really important. I mean, they know economically how important it is and also for the sustainability of the union as well. So, I mean, um, we we think that uh, ultimately a deal would be done, uh, which, you know, potentially the numbers could be slightly smaller, but we're still optimistic on that. Yeah, it's a lot of money, isn't it? Uh, look, in terms of mm-hmm. where you would put your money in terms of European and global equities, I notice you are pretty constructive on equities as well. Would you prefer to allocate that money to the US and Asia or is Europe more exciting or just give us your breakdown? Yes, so we are uh, slightly more optimistic on equities. So that's really because of the uh, better economic data that we've seen. So it's really rather global in nature. So uh, China, we've seen the data, it has bounced back quite sharply and also in Europe and as well as the US. So um, as a result, we have turned a bit more optimistic and we're allocating that uh, money into US and Asia ex Japan. And the reason why is because um, for the US is more of uh, a growth style and it has more healthcare in its weight. And we believe that these stocks are going to perform well in on the future because we're going to uh, be in a very low interest rate environment, which will be supportive to uh, growth stocks, for instance, like technology. And for Asia, Japan, you know, there, there is also uh, quite a big weight in these tech giants in Asia. And also this region is very economically sensitive to the global economy. So we, we are right in the sense that the economy is heading in the right direction. Asia, Japan should be a region that should benefit. And we are um, not as optimistic in Europe. As you can see, you know, um, it is still quite hard to push things through in that region. And I think that region has fundamentally more 
um, of those value styles, uh, stocks, which uh, is unlikely to do well in a low interest rate environment. Yeah, you and I share something in common. That is longer term down the line, we have concerns about inflation, but it's hard to see it rearing its head in the short term as well. What does that mean our viewers should do for their fixed income positions? Yeah, so we, I mean, as we have turned slightly more positive on equities, we have, on the other hand, um, turned even more pessimistic on uh, fixed income. So the reason why is because I think yields are very low. I mean, this doesn't really need to be emphasized, but as um, as in the UK, the yields are at the lowest ever for the 10-year and uh, we think that there is just a, a lot of asymmetric risk to the downside in terms of yields. And as you have mentioned, inflation, I mean, I don't think it is a very near-term issue. So technically, the uh, headline inflation should pick up because of the oil price pickup, but we don't think that will be like threatening, as in going above the 2% target or anything like that. But in the slightly longer term, I think this is not being appreciated by markets. Uh, because we have got so much fiscal stimulus as well as monetary stimulus, and this could potentially be more inflationary in the longer term. But I think markets haven't uh, priced that in, so there could be some risk to the uh, to the yields going up. So uh, if as we're long-term investors, we just don't see that much value in uh, government bonds at the moment. Uh, Janet, quick one on um, the US political scene as well. Joe Biden's got a chance at Texas, it seems, for the first time in the best part of 45 years as well, which is quite an extraordinary turn of events uh, for a state which has been solidly Republican for a long time. Is the market building in enough risk into a Democrat president? Um, I think... Not, not at the moment, really, uh, because I think the if you look at the betting markets and the polls, there's a strong indication that uh, it is to Biden's favor. Um, but because his measures, I mean, his proposals are more uh, uh, tax rises for the corporates, uh, and uh, that that is fundamentally worse for the equity market. But I don't see that uh, markets are reacting to that or being priced into that so far. Um, so I think generally speaking, uh, there is a risk. But our view is that uh, with the economy so fragile still, I mean, there there is a recovery, but it's going to be quite difficult for the longer term. Uh, so we think that any negative policy, any policy that will put further strain on corporate uh, would be uh, under heavy scrutiny. So it could be harder to enact despite a potentially a Joe Biden a presidency. So uh, that's why I think markets have been slightly more sanguine about it. Janet, excellent. Thank you very much indeed for you know, my first guest of the week. And, uh, saving the first for best. I think there's something like that anyway. Janet, nice to see you. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Janet Murray, who investment director at Bruin Dolphin. Right, you lot. Can I ask you a favour? If I tell you something, will you not look it up before I get to it, okay? There's something amazing in these Asian markets. I mean, you, you can hardly see it. Look at, look at the Nikkei, yeah? Yeah, there's something massive going on in the data. But don't look it up until I tell you. How about that? Don't do like one of those radio quizzes where you look it up now I've teased that. Wait for me to tell you in about three minutes. Can you do that? Oh, you're rubbish, you lot. Just do it, okay? Anyway, coming up on the show, the US records tens of thousands of new cases for President Trump, uh, Trump even. Uh, double Trump, that's a new guy. Uh, Mr. Trump doubles down on his claim that coronavirus will disappear. We'll be back. Plus, the podcast, oh, it's a, it's a winner this time. It's all about the EU summit. No, no, it's better than that.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. All right, welcome back. Did you do it? Did you hold off? Well done, some of you. Uh, right, okay, so some interesting markets here. Very interesting. Okay, look, so do you want to look at the big one that's going down, the S6200 down six tenths? Nope. Do you want to look at the Shanghai Composite up 2.5%? Another big move to the upside for the mainland Chinese markets? Nope. I want to look at this one. Really exciting number. Look at this. 0.07. Is that it you're saying? No, it's not. Look at that. The Nikkei is doing nothing today, yeah? But if I said to you, you've just lost a quarter of your exports year on year. What? You're saying? Yeah, you've just lost a quarter of your exports year on year because of these figures in June when things are supposed to be recovering a little bit. You must go, wow, I think that's a huge, huge number. Basically, we were expecting down 24.9. We lost 26.2%, yeah? That's nothing. I'm peeling back the onion. And when you peel back an onion, you very often cry, okay? So the next biggest number is shipments to the US, okay? Biggest export market for Japan as near as 2018. It's now China, of course, as you know. How many, what do you think the exports were down to the US in June? Yeah, 46.6%. So you've just lost 40, half of your exports to the US, okay? Yeah, what do you think your, your sales of aviation products were? Your sales uh, of automobiles were? Look at these numbers. 63.3% down, down on your auto sales across the Pacific in the month of June. Aeroplane engine parts as well, 56.8% down. So look at those numbers. I know we're in a world of massive numbers. Down 26% on the overall figures. Down uh, 40-odd percent on the sales to one of your biggest markets on the planet. Down 63. These are huge, historic numbers across the board. Massive figures. And what does the market do on the back of it? Absolutely nothing. That's where we've come to. That's where we've come to. All right, do you want to look at those US markets? from last week. Now, I've been going on to you for a long time about a lot of things, but one thing I've been trying to say to you is there's, there's potentially a rotation story going on. It really, really came to fruition a little bit more last week as well. So what we saw is an underperformance on the week today on the NASDAQ. NASDAQ week today was down 1.06%, okay? Remember that, down 1%. Outperformed not only by the Dow up 2.3% and the S&P up 1.3% week to date, but some of those other sectors, which I hope the last couple of weeks you've been listening to me, because I've been trying to point out there's some very interesting opportunities. Again, I don't trade this stuff, so it's up to you. The Dow Transports were up 6.3% last week. The Russell 2K was up 3.6%. So transports over NASDAQ. I don't know if you pair this one. I don't care if you pair this one. I'm just telling you what the numbers were. 7.4% outperformance of the transports compared uh, with the Nasdaq. Isn't that interesting? No? All right, okay. All right, let's have a look at Amazon. Then. Oh, you all want to look at Amazon. We'll do that again then. We only care about the phones. Okay, here we go. Look at the three-month performance. 20, that's why you're all in the blooming Robin Hood accounts, and that's why so many of you are so narrowly owned on this stuff. The whole point of my job every day is to get to look at other stuff as well. I'm not telling you to trade it. I'm telling you to look at it. Three months up. Oh, yeah, I've still made loads of money on Amazon. Well, did you last week? Look at that. That's last, kind of last week. Most of it's last week. What do you think you were down last week on your Amazon? 
you lost about 7.4% on your Amazon last week as well. So consumer discretionaries, which has been skyrocketing sector to the upside, was again one of the worst performing sectors last week. It was down 1.6%, of which the star performer in that sector is Amazon as well. Who do you think were the exciting sectors last week? You know, well, you might guess. Industrials and materials. Exciting, I hear you saying. Well, they are exciting if you own them. 58 and 5.4% up, respectively. So there has, without... Uh, doubt and ambiguously been a big rotation into some of those more depressed valuation stocks and sectors last week. Whether it lasts, I don't know. Look at this one. This is the most amazing stat from last week. We put it up again because I think it's quite interesting. And this is lumber. Got lumber? Here we go. Look at this. Three month. I've got to do my button again now. Haven't I? Look. Three month move. Why do I care about lumber? I, it's, it's impossible to trade, by the way. I wouldn't advise you get involved in this one. It's so narrowly traded. The OI, the open interest, is really tight in this one. But, but, it is a metaphor. Metaphor. I don't know, how many syllables is that this early in the morning? Metaphor. Three syllables. The point about lumber is you build houses in America with lumber, lots and lots of them as well. And if that's going up, is that a metaphor for what's going on in US activity? I don't know, but there's some really bad news around still regarding coronavirus, I'll tell you that much. The, the WHO has reported the largest single day increase in global coronavirus cases since the beginning of the pandemic as the numbers rose by almost 260,000. In 24 hours, the global death toll grew by over 7,000. Most of the new infections were recorded in the United States, Brazil, India, and Russia. The southern U.S. states, we were talking about uh, Texas earlier on, weren't we? The southern U.S. states once again saw a large surge, with Florida logging more than 10,000 new cases for a fifth day in a row. But U.S. President Mr. Trump has doubled down on his claim that the virus will, quote, disappear, adding that the surge in cases will be brought under control eventually <laughs> i will I be right eventually you know i said it's going to disappear i'll say it again but does it's that going dis- to disappear does that discredit and i'll you? be right i don't think so right i don't think so you know why it doesn't discredit? because i've been right probably more than anybody else uh the president also vowed not to order americans to wear masks to contain the spread meanwhile the director of the national institutes of health called the political divide over wearing masks quote bizarre In an interview uh, on Meet the Press, Dr. Francis Collins said he does not believe that facial coverings are optional. It is bizarre that we have turned mask wearing into something political. Imagine you were an alien coming to the planet Earth and looking around, looking at the scientific data, going from very place to place and looking to see who's wearing masks. You would be totally astounded, puzzled, amazed. You'd wonder, what is going on here? How could it be that something as basic as a public health action that we have very strong evidence can help seems to attach uh, to people's political party? The Trump administration is seeking to block billions of dollars in coronavirus testing and tracing funds in the upcoming stimulus bill. This according to multiple reports. The White House also opposes extra money for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and is instead seeking to channel some of the relief funds to causes unrelated to the pandemic, including the new FBI headquarters. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.